Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. open in prayer and we'll get in the start in Acts 15. Father, thanks for this night and for being here and open our hearts to your truth. Help us to study this and understand it. Guide us with your Holy Spirit, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 15 is one of the important chapters in Acts. Um, it basically gives us, for the most part, a description of the Jerusalem Council. Um, in those days, the, the church was um, ha- had an organizational sort of structure, and, and the center group or the center governing body of the church was what? Who, who did it comprise of, basically? The apostles. And where were they? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Remember earlier on it said that the church was scattered abroad, but the apostles, for the most part, at least at this time, um, remained at Jerusalem, all right? And so you have the Jerusalem church, which is sort of birthing these other churches, and it's going out from there. Now, that didn't last forever, all right? So it wasn't, you know, um, how do you want to put it? Uh, Catholicism, for example, wants to make the case that the Roman church became the central church and that everything falls under the Roman um, C, they call it. Um, this is just the way it was. This is early on, of course, and what's happening? Well, the church is growing and expanding, but the foundation of the church was what? What was the foundation of the church built on? He is the foundation, but from the human point of view, the apostles and prophets are the foundation. Ephesians talks about that. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All right. And, of course, that's where they were, is in Jerusalem. And what happened here in verse 15, now we have the Antioch Church, all right? And who, who of course, are the, to the two of the most uh, prominent people there now? Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Mm-hmm. They had gone on a missionary journey, and, of course, Paul's brilliant, you know, a brilliant expositor, and, an, and he understands the Old Testament. And what happens is uh, it came to pass that... Uh, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, where did they pick this up? Where did they pick this doctrine up? Exodus. Well, the Old Testament, right? And uh, basically they were Jewish people, right? And if you look at the Old Testament, I mean, it's pretty strong. In the Old Testament, that if you were not circumcised, you could not be part of God's covenant people. So the natural understanding would be what when you became a Jew, a Jewish Christian? You should get circumcised. All right? I mean, that's just a natural understanding. And uh, they came along and basically said, unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. So although you fa- place your faith in Christ, although you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you don't have this external right done... You're not in. And when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, 
they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So what happens is you've got a contingent coming down from the Jerusalem church. They, they're teaching this doctrine here that you need to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas get into this big dispute with them over this, um, about it not needing to be done for the church. And how does the church respond to this great dispute? At this time, they're in Antioch. Okay. So how did the Antiochian church deal with this? Let's go back to Jerusalem, send them back to what? The apostles, the foundation, right? And let's find out what the deal is. Let's have a council and work through this issue. All right. What is interesting here is that you don't see a church split. That's how we deal with it, right? Yeah. I want to back to the circumcision. Had that question been on the test and I said Judaizers would have been wrong? Well, Judaizers taught, Judaizers taught that salvation was by a mixture of grace and, and works. Mm-hmm. One of the prominent works being circumcision. Right. A secondary one would have been diet and some of the other and Sabbath keeping and things like that. All right. So and they taught them a mixture of law and grace. And that's that's really why Paul wrote Galatians is to deal with that whole issue. Um, but it says here that uh, they decided to go up to Jerusalem and ask about this this issue and work it out. Um, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria describing the con- conversion of the Gentiles, and they cause great joy to all the brethren. So as now, wh- this is just on the way there, all right? To get from Antioch to Jerusalem, you go through Phoenicia and Samaria. That's the route you would take on the way down. And while they're doing that, they're relating what God had done among the Gentiles. Now, how did God save those people in Galatia? Faith. Uh, go over to Galatians chapter 3 and you can read that. Paul talks about how when he came to these churches, and by the way, Galatians, the book, is most likely written to Lystra, Derby, Antioch of Pisidia, all right, and Iconium. That's probably the churches that Paul was writing to. And um, in that, he says, How are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you're now perfected by the flesh? Now, you got to understand that this was one of the major issues that you see being ironed out in the book of Acts. All right? Because since, again, the bulk of the early church was Jewish in nature, the Jews came out of a system of faith, of, of works righteousness. You've really got to iron through all of those issues. All right? And that's one of the things that you see happening here in the book of Acts. You have to work through. How do we separate this? What does it mean to be saved? And do we have those same arguments today? Sure. I was just talking to a friend of mine over my vacation. He goes to a church now where the pastor's a KJV only guy. And his basic spin on this is if you're saved using any other Bible than the King James, you're not saved. So you can't use your NIV in witnessing. If you do, that person's not really saved because they don't have the true word of God. Yeah. I mean, it, 
what happens, we, we've, we fall into these same kind of little traps here where we want to mix this stuff up, all right? And one of the things that you find that Paul, and Paul was adamant about this. And, and by the way, how did Paul start out his life? He, he was more legalistic than these guys were. I mean, you talk about being legalistic. Paul, Paul says, you want to measure legalistic uh, credentials in Philippians 3. He said, I can beat you all. He said, I was more zealous than anyone. You want to play that game, I win. Um, Paul was adamant about this, not mixing law and grace. But you've got to understand that these people were still trying to slog through what it meant. They, you know, We look back and say, well, what's wrong with these people? Well, they, they've been brought up their entire life on this. And to the Jews, circumcision was an, was an extremely important thing. Remember, what were the three big boasts that the Jew had? Circumcision was one. That's a gimme. What's the other one? They, were, they, were, they had Abraham as their father. And what was the third one? They had the law. That was their three big boasts. And most Jews thought that that gave them an automatic go-to-heaven-free card. If you were circumcised and you had the law and you're, you were a direct line from Abraham, you're in. And Paul has to sort through that. So they go down to the Jerusalem church. And as Paul's going along, he's relating how the Gentiles were saved. Now, when the Gentiles were saved, did he have them line up outside the the church and get circumcised and then go into the water and get dunked for baptism? No. No, not at all. So the... Um, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. These are Pharisees who believed. All right. Now let's ask a question. Um, this is an interesting question. Were these Pharisees truly saved? Yes. Yes. Yeah. See, what, it's interesting. Um, when I was going through the book of Galatians, someone says, if you believe you're saved by faith, and then you've got to keep works. Are you truly born again? And what would the answer to that be? You're saved by faith, but then you have to. There are certain rules that you have to follow. Right, because how are you saved? And in the grand scheme of things, how are you saved? You're elect, right? So you can be saved and have a muddled theology, right? A muddled theology. A muddled understanding. Yes, you can. However, here's a question. Can you be saved if you believe from the get-go you're saved by faith and works? Going in. That's right. Yeah. 
Okay. Now, the problem with these Pharisees was the same problem that the Judaizers had in Galatians. That Paul says, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? You started out in the spirit. How did you get saved? By the spirit. And once you're saved, you're always saved. So you can be a Christian and be muddled on this. Be confused. All right. These Pharisees were believers. I mean, there's nothing in the text to indicate that they were not. But what did they bring in to their Christian experience? The law, because that's what, you know, they have been pounded into them their entire life. You know, um, and this is, this is, this is, you know, and again, they, they, they didn't have, you know, the scripture. They didn't have the book of Galatians and Romans and all that to help them sort through this stuff yet. This was still early on. They're still trying to sort this out. And so what they had is the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. Who are the apostles? Well, the twelve. Who are the elders? Or or it could have been the in this case, the elders at this one. By the way, this this tells you one thing. You know, when when, it, when you talk about church organizational structure, how many elders should a church have? Huh? Are you using it in the sense of the preacher? As many as it needs. Elders and how many elders? How many pastors? How many of them? More than one. More than one. However many it needs. Depends on how big the church is, right? If you have a small church, you might have two or three. Um, if you have a very large church, you might have 50 or 60, depending on you know the size of the church. But here's the point, the point being made. The, the best model is multiple elders. And why is that? Accountability. When you are the pastor and you're, you're God to those people in the church, that's a very bad spot to be in. It's too easy to fall prey to victim to being a you know prideful and arrogant and you know whereas multiple elders have checks and balances you know um, and 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 the pattern that you find in the New Testament is multiple elders in all the churches all right there's more than one now it, it may be the case that one of the elders is very gifted at preaching so that's what he basically does but you should have multiple elders in your church. It makes for good accountability. And uh, when there had been much dispute, in other words, they talked about it a long time. Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's he talking about there? What event is he talking about? Cornelius. Cornelius. And remember, who was given the keys of the kingdom? Peter. And so Peter was the one who preached at Pentecost. Peter is the one who was there with Samaria, right? And Peter is the one who went to Cornelius. All right. And God is using him to unlock the expanding gospel to different people groups. All right. And Peter says, you guys all know that a while ago, God chose me to be 
the one to preach to the Gentiles, Cornelius. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. What's he talking about there? Spoken tongues, tongues, they had the same manifestation. Yeah. Peter says, you know, I went and preached the gospel to the Gentiles when they believed they got the same Holy Spirit we did. They had the same manifestation. They spoke in the same tongues, which would tend to make him think that they were the same. And verse 9, it made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by... Faith. So what's Peter saying? How did how did Cornelius and these Gentiles, how did they get to be believers? They believed. And when they believed, they got the same Holy Spirit, the same manifestation, the same sign. They weren't circumcised. It doesn't say that, and after we circumcised in baptism, they got the Holy Spirit. And since Cornelius was a Gentile, he probably went out and had a ham sandwich later on. All right. He certainly wasn't eating kosher food. And he wasn't um, observing the Sabbath day and the dietary restrictions. And yet, what did God do? God saved him. So what does that tell you about salvation? And it's not based on what you do. And Peter is trying to tell us that, look, guys. Remember what happened. Remember that. Now, therefore, this is one of the smarter things Peter said. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What's the yoke? The law. Bondage. You want to go back to that? You want to go back to the bondage? Paul talks about the law being a burden and a bondage, and he talks in Galatians about it being our schoolmaster. What's the schoolmaster to do? He disciplines the young child. He's an unrelenting taskmaster. His job is to make sure the kid learns his lessons. Why? Because someday that kid is going to be the master, and if he is going to make it that far, he needs to be able to be disciplined. And the taskmaster, his job as a schoolmaster was to discipline the child and make him do what he was supposed to do, fulfill his duties. The law is our schoolmaster. It beat us in a submission. And why did it do that? Sets a standard. What does it tell you? That we can't You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Um, you know, when I was going through the Old Testament, um, teaching Old Testament survey, one of the things I mentioned is that if you want to boil the Old Testament down to one phrase, one sentence, it would almost be God is holy, you're not, stay away. All right? God is holy, you're not, stay away. Because what happened in the fall in Genesis 3 is man got kicked out of the garden. And since then, he's had to what? Stay away from God. You get into God's presence, you die. You see God, you're dead. 
And if there's anything God cannot stand, sin in his presence. And the law was given to us to show us just how far short we fell. Now, let's think about this a minute. Was the law given was the law given as a set of rules? Is that what the essence of the law is? What was the intent? To show them how to treat each other. The law of Moses, yeah, thou shalt don't kill each other. Well, is that a rule? Is that a rule? That was God's law. Is it a rule? Yeah, that's a rule, but it's a law. It's a pattern to follow. Something to follow. Um, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. How do you how do you pull that one off? Yeah, how do you pull that off? Is that a rule? How do you keep the rule? How do you not do it? How do you pull that one off? You know what? We're all idolaters to some degree in here. Let's face it, aren't we? I mean, you want you want you want to be you want to really be picky and strict about it. We're all idolaters because there are things that at times we place ahead of God, right? Now you know we don't have you know hopefully idols in our home that we bow down to and that kind of thing and pray to a rock or a piece of wood, but there are things that take God's place, right? Yeah. So how do you, how do you how do you keep that rule? Yeah. You can. But there is a way in which you could keep it. And how is that? Well, none of us can keep it perfectly, right? Well, let's let's think about you know what what is the essence of the law? When when Christ was confronted by that guy, what did Christ say? What is what is the law? What did, how was he, what was the answer? Love the Lord thy God, our soul, mind, strength. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And what did Christ say? That's 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 it. All right. So, if the law summarizes it, what is that statement about? It's the heart. Okay. You know, in, in a crass way, when, when I married my wife, I did not need a bunch of rules to tell me what not to do. Sometimes I sort of wish I had those because it would help things, you know. But, but you know, I didn't have I didn't have a lot of Thou shalt not see Audrey anymore. She was an old girlfriend. I didn't have that rule. Thou shalt not talk to Susie. Thou shalt not talk to Anne. Thou shalt not talk to Kathy. I mean, I could have come up with a hundred and thousand of those, right? Those are rules. But how could, how could I take care of all of those rules? How could I, how could I eliminate the need to keep track of all of those rules?
by loving my wife. That's what the law is all about, and that's what the Jews missed. The law that God gave Moses was not a set of rigorous commandments that they were to put on their their refrigerator or, or their their you know wherever they hung things up in those days. And all right, let's see. I, I didn't bow down to that stone over there, so I kept the first one. Well, you can break the first one and never bow down to a stone. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What's that all about? Well, you're not allowed to work on Sabbath. And boy, they had a stack of rules that high on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Was that what God intended? No. What's the, what's the essence of the remember the Sabbath day to keep holy? What is the essence of that? If you love God, what are you going to do? You're going to spend time with him. And God knew that it would be good to set aside a day where you didn't have to work to focus on your relationship with God. God did not give you the Sabbath day so you could sit around all day long in your house and stare at the wall. That's not the purpose of it. All right. Um, you talk about uh, do not take the name of thy Lord thy God in vain. What is that? Well, you're not supposed to say uh, G, D, and H, and S, and all those other words, right? Is that what it means? If you love God, you're not going to, um, you're going to respect him and his character and who he is. And when somebody says something bad about God, you're going to want to defend him, right? Because you love him. You respect his name. His name is holy because that's what he is. The law was a codification of a relationship. And if you got to the point where you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you wouldn't have idol idols. You wouldn't make graven images. You wouldn't take his name in vain. You would spend time with him joyfully. And if you loved others as yourself, you wouldn't kill them. You wouldn't commit adultery. And what did Christ do in the Sermon on the Mount? Is he took all those little external rules that they had created, and he said, you missed the point, because the point is not the rule, it's the heart. Thou shalt not kill does not mean don't stick a knife in the guy's back. It means don't hate. Thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't mean do not commit the physical act. It, doesn't, it says don't even think about that. It's a relationship. And what the Jews had done, the Pharisees had done, they marred that. And that became a burden. Where there were so many laws, you couldn't keep them all. You know, in our culture today, that we've gone such the opposite extreme <clears throat> that people will feel like, okay, I can do anything I want. And I have people who you know, commit adultery, divorce their spouse, and they say, I don't even have to ask for people. I'm a Christian, God forgives me. And I'm and, and, and yeah. so far the opposite way, our society could use some burden. And you know what? You know, the, the problem is that is that is a that is a misunderstanding of God's grace. Sure. That's a total misunderstanding. Because I mean does it mean that we go on sinning all the more? Yeah. I, I mean God said don't commit adultery. 
he means don't think it. Don't commit the act. Don't think it. Why? Because that's a violation of another person. That's what it is. And people say, well, I can do that and God will forgive me anyways. They're missing, they're missing the whole point of it. Why do you think our culture could use a burden? What a burden? Burden of the law. Somewhere. Well, well, you know, how can I put it? Not, not to be saved, but once right. you're saved, to say, yeah. Well, if you're saved, but but here's the point. The point is, where should that? Where should the motivating factor? Always from the heart. It's always from the heart. That's the point. It's from the heart. What we have done and, and what churches do is they try to create a list of things that you do externally. Your heart can do, you, you can be thinking anything you want. As long as you keep this little list, you're cool and fine and holy and godly and spiritual in their eyes. All right. You don't want to go down that path. I saw a Christian today who says, I never, and he goes to church every Sunday, never gives a penny. And he says it's a matter of the heart. There's nothing about tithing, nothing about legalistic, nothing about the Old Testament. And God doesn't need no money to accomplish his ends. Yeah. If uh, I can't be a cheerful giver, I send gifts on that. Yeah, and my response to him would be, you don't love God. Yeah. You don't love God, right? You're telling me you're going to love someone and you're going to be a cheapskate? If I love my wife, I'm not going to give her stuff, right? I mean, isn't that part of, isn't that one of the primary expressions of love is that you give? But you were saying that you wish you had a bullshit. Joking. Yes. I was joking. But other people, though, they really do. You know, mm -hmm. how do I handle this situation? A lot of times when people are saved, they've come from such a an awful background that has mm -hmm. absolutely no training. They don't need the law so much as as to say we have to follow these rules and regulations, but they need some guidance, some guidelines. Mm -hmm. And and that's see, and you hit a very important point there because. The law does have a, the list has, there are lists that have a good, um, have a good value in our lives, all right? If you're a new Christian, right, it helps to have a few rules, all right? Just like a five-year-old needs some rules, right? I mean, he needs, he, he or she needs to have, you know, you go to bed at this time, you eat your peas or asparagus or whatever it is. You know, there are certain rules. Why is that? Because they have not reached a maturity level yet where it's been internalized. All right. Christians, you know, there is a, a place for um, code of, con I don't know what you want to call it, code of conduct or rules or or, or convictions, there's a place for that early on. But if 20 years from now, you're still leaning on these rules to define your relationship to God, there's something wrong with you. Just like if you're 25 years old and your mom says, Johnny, it's time for bed, and you go to bed, there's something wrong with you. All right? Because hopefully at 25, you got enough sense to realize that bedtime is not a rule. Bedtime is a principle if I'm going to work the next day, I got to sleep. If I'm going to function, I got to do this. I don't need my mother to tell me to eat my peas. I don't, you know, there comes a point when it goes beyond the rules to the relationship. And that's, that's what Paul is trying to steer people towards, like in Galatians and all of that. And, 
you know, it was a schoolmaster. The law had a role. It had a, a purpose, a good purpose. Paul says that in Romans 7. There's a purpose for the law. But if you're stuck there, you're never going to mature. You're never going to get beyond that. And what happened with the Pharisees is they got stuck with all of these rules to the extent that they figured their relationship to God depended on how well they kept the rules. And that's where you start, but that's not where you end up. Because that's legalism. Somebody was asking me about tithing the other day, and I said, you know, I love my wife. I want to give her things. I don't say, well, Don, you know, I gave you your 10% this month, and, you know, if you don't can't do it that, forget it, you know. What kind of love is that? If you love someone, you're going to want to give to them. And that goes back to, you know, the, the conversation you had there with the guy. You know, his attitude, his basic attitude is, since there are no rules, I can do as I please. Because there are no rules. Yes, there are rules, but where do the rules go? Inside. What do you, what do you think it meant in, in Ezekiel, or I think Jeremiah, where it says, uh, God says, a new covenant I'm going to give you, and I'm going to take the law, and I'm going to write it where? On your heart. You know, when you get to heaven, there's not going to be any rules in heaven. You know why? You're not going to need them because you're going to love God. You're not going to do anything to violate any rule. Your flesh will be gone. There won't be this thing you're lugging around that, that causes us to sin. And if you want to think about it, you know, when, when a person comes to know the Lord, you know, like, it's good to have some rules. But don't stay there. Don't leave them there. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm trying to get this, you know, this concept across. You know, if, you know, somebody comes and comes to, uh, as a new believer, you should say, you know, you need to be in the, in the word every day. All right. Now, if, if, as you develop and mature and you love the Lord your God, are there days that we're not in the Word? Mm -hmm. Right, right. But overall, where's our heart at? It's with God. It's with Him. And that's what God wants. God wants the, the motivation for what we do to come from within. Because our heart is right. We want to do that. It's not that we have to do that. We want to do that. Yeah, that's tough. I'm saying. It's tough. The problem is... No. Yeah, you got to repent. And when, we've, when, and when we... You know, and we we all sin. We need to repent. We can't go around saying, "Oh, well, God's forgiven me anyways." It doesn't matter whether they say, yeah, "I'm sorry." You know, I might offend my wife. She still loves me, but I got to say, "I'm sorry." Right? It's a relationship thing. All right, and and you you don't want to get to that point. But but you want to develop in your spiritual walk where you where the motivation for you doing what you do comes from the heart. And, and, and what programs your heart is the word of God. All right. And you may start out your spiritual life with a lot of rules and regulations and, and you got a little list of things. But as time goes on, that should that list should become irrelevant because you're doing them anyway because you love God. And you don't need a list of things to tell you what you should and shouldn't do because you love God. The difficulty is we become enamored with our list. 
And our heart can be a million miles away from God, but as long as we keep our list, we think we're okay. The word of God tells us so, it defines the, the relationship. For example, I can't love God and be an adulterer. Why is that? Because that's a violation of the relationship. Right, so this is what I'm trying to say. You know, I'm a person that say I love God, but I still lie, I still cheat, I do these different things here, but I say I love God. You don't love God. Wait a minute. Yeah. I don't got saved. Mm -hmm. I don't got saved, but I still haven't learned how to quit cheating people mm -hmm. or lying. I'm still maturing in these areas. Right. So where am I in my faith walk? That's what I'm saying. I mean, how do you know? That's why people try to have laws. Is because they want, I mean, rules because they want to know, well, it, you know, wanted to be real clear to them that yes, I'm doing this correctly the way God wants it to be done. And, and there, there's a, you know, there is a place for thou shalt not commit adultery. That is still a law. There's still a commandment. But what what God wants to do, wants us to to get to a point in our lives is where that's not just an external. Okay, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And I didn't do that. Rather, I love God so much that I wouldn't dare want to offend him by engaging in that. And the motivation goes internal. And that's the strongest motivation for holy living. That's the strong. That's that's the motivation. It's because I want to. I want to. I think sanctification process, you know, when you first get saved, you're saved. God's Yes. And you know what? That grows over the years, right? You know? Yeah, it's a lifetime. You never, you never, but what God wants is, is, is God, God did not save us so we could regurgitate 5,000 rules that we're not allowed to do. God saved us to have a relationship with him. A relationship that's driven out of our love for him. And when we love God, if I love God, I'm not going to want to offend him. I'm not going to want to do those things that cause him grief. And how do I know what things cause him grief? He's told me. All right. You still do it. Yep. And, and when that happens... You repent, you ask forgiveness, there's restoration, you know. But what happens a lot of times is, see, we create these rules that we can, most of the time we create rules we can keep, right? We create rules that we can keep, and we think as long as we're keeping these rules we can keep, everything's cool between me and God. And I could be a million miles away. That's what God told Israelites in, in Isaiah, right? He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me, teaching the commandments of men for my my doctrine. You know, it's a hard attitude. And the church is struggling with this because the Pharisees and the Jews have this pounded into them their entire life. And now all of a sudden, 
they're taking this step from the rule book that's sort of like they're moving out of the house. And now they've got to decide. There, there is no law that says go to bed at 8. Now they got to say, you know, i got to work tomorrow. Maybe I should get to bed at a certain time. They no longer have a parent telling them what to eat, but they know they have to eat the right things. It goes internal. And they had a tough time making that break from the law. It was, it, it, and we don't appreciate it, I don't think. I think you know, a, a similar generation like that. I had a pastor that's very Right. And God, you know, God wants you to do his will a lot worse than you do. And if you ask him to help you do those things to please him, what is he going to do? He'll help you. You know, and, and, and you know, that that's where, you know, I've seen over the, the past few years where it's really, where I've really come to understand this even in my own life that it needs to be driven not by the rules but by my hard attitude. And, and the rules take care of themselves. I don't need that. All right? Because I love him. And, and how do you define your love for him? Well, you do those things that are pleasing to him. How do you know what's pleasing him? Well, the word tells you. So, of course, I can't say, well, I'm pleasing God, but I'm living in adultery. Or, I'm pleasing God, but I'm not going to give him any money. What kind of love is that? You know, these people are deceived. What do you do with um, they come to church and, you know, they still never been church. Like, I mean, they still come to church every week, sit up on the word, just, just continue to live like they're okay. Somebody's yeah. not telling them something they need to hear. Not being addressed. Well, I mean, I mean, that, that's a good, that's a good, you, you yeah, you bring up a good point. Any kind of way the pastors know it, you know, and they're not even, you know, people, you know, because sometimes when, you know, you may say that person is mature because they've been in the church five years, ten years, they really may not be mature in that area. They may not be. The way I would handle that personally, and then we'll get back to the text, um, is I would, I would try to assess, do they claim to be a Christian? If they claim to be a Christian, they make that claim, then they're living in adultery. Bottom line. So how do you deal with someone who's living in sin? Matthew 18. You go to tell them. If they don't listen, you take someone else. If they don't listen, what do you do? You put them out of the church. Oh, that's not friendly. Well, yes, it is friendly. They're making the claim to be a Christian. Now, if they if they claim not to be a Christian, if they are pagans, and they make they don't make no pretense about being a Christian, what do you do? You leave them alone. Let them come. Why? Because they they don't know any better. And and I, I, you see that in the New Testament. One of the difficulties we have as Christians, we want to we want to place our Christian values on unbelievers. It doesn't work. You don't try it. It doesn't work. But if they claim to be a Christian. They make that claim, then that's when you bring in church discipline or, you know, you confront the sin. Because they're making a claim to be a Christian. So you have to be a pastor to confront that person? Nope. You can be anybody. doesn't say you need to be a pastor or anybody. You could. 
Oh, I, I don't mean to sound no. corrupt. I'm just saying anybody, you know, people say, well, I'm not the pastor. I can't do that. Well, the Bible says if, if any of you see a brother overtaken in a fault, what do you do? You restore him. And who, it doesn't say if any of you pastors see someone. If any of you see someone. Paul did, yeah, where, where, where there is a, a, another lack of repentance and a hardness of heart, you turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You put them out of the church. Yeah. I mean, so if you see a Christian, somebody who claims to be a Christian, but they're not a member of the church, they're just a regular attendee. Yeah, but I think you I think you still do what the Bible says. You confront them and you say you're not welcome to worship here. You know, I mean, you still do that. Now, in our litigious society, that's getting harder and harder. But, you know, sometimes you got to do what the Bible says and let the chips fall and hope you have a lawyer in your church that can represent you. You know, but and by the way, just so you know, there in, in the United States, there is legal precedence for you know if you're a member and you're you 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 make the claim to join then you fall under the rules of that organization there's an implied assent to that all right it's different when you're not a member you know in that case you may not you know putting them out of the church may just be you know you're not really welcome to worship here you know and you have a right to say that you know now are you going to you know get the big guys drag them out of the church when they show up well that's something you have to work through they're probably not going to want to come if you do that. Um, but you need to deal with it. But what's happening here is that the Jerusalem councils come together to iron out, what do you do with this? And Paul and, and Peter is basically saying that when the Gentiles who are not circumcised, who did not have the law, believe they got the same Holy Spirit, they're in the same body, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. All of us are saved how? Faith in Christ. That's how you're saved. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So the, the crowds, you know, they're all arguing there and the crowd shut up. And then Paul and Barnabas gave their testimony. They talked about their trip to Iconium, Lystra, Derby. What had happened, how the Gentiles had come to know the Lord, how they had believed, how they were saved. And after they became silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Who's James here? Is it Jesus? This Jesus' brother. How do we know it's not the apostle? Well, he got killed in, you know, chapter 12. So it's not that James. Um, almost universally, and Eusebius tells, bears this out, and church history bears this out, that this is the half-brother of Christ. Okay, and how do we know that it's quite possibly him? Well, if you look at his letter here in verse 23, um, it sounds an awful bit like the book of James. All right, so there's great evidence to assert that this is James, the half-brother of our Lord. Listen to me. Simon has declared, who's Simon? That's Peter. Simeon. Simon. Simon Peter. Well, Simeon. Simeon is Simon. It's a, it's a different spelling. Okay. How God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now he quotes um, 
a passage out of the Old Testament here, Amos. After this I will return, I will build the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will build its ruins, I will set it up, so that the rest of my of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. This is a quote out of Amos. Alright? Where it's talking about how even in the Old Testament, there's a hint of the blessings that go to the Gentiles. Alright? The Gentiles who are called by my name, who are those? Well, they're believers, right? Yeah. Known to God from eternity are all his works. What's that mean? What's he sort of trying to say there? Known by known to God from all eternity are his works. Whatever happens, God's already knows about that. It's been planned out. Therefore, if God planned to bring the Gentiles in, that's part of God's eternal plan. He knew it all along. This is not a new thing. God did not change his mind. All right? Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now, why would he say, I judge that we should not do that? What, why would he say that? What was he? He was the head of the Jerusalem council. He was the leader there, all right? It's not that he was better than anyone else, but that he was elected to be the main elder. This is James. James. And Eusebius says that Peter and John, not wanting to cause dissension, something like that, um, elected James to be the head of the council. They made they took someone who was not a disciple, not an apostle, and made him the the head of the Jerusalem council. James was the one that they chose. Yes, same one. One that was. No, that was James, the brother of John. This is James, the half-brother of Christ. Okay? Jude and James are full brothers. Okay? Um, Christ is half-brother to all of them, because <laughs> he had no earthly father. Um, so he says, let's not trouble them. Trouble them with what? With all the law. It's not, that, it's not that they are antinomian, they do what they, they want, that's not what he says, but let's not burden them with the ceremonial restrictions, circumcision, diet, all of that stuff. And what were those things, the circumcision, the dietary laws, the ceremony, what was all that about? That's a picture book, that sets them apart, that was to keep them distinct. It's not founded in, he's not saying, let's not, let's tell them the moral law of God is irrelevant, you know, they can go commit adultery and it's fine. That's not what he's saying, right? It's the ceremonial parts of the law. The, 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 the legalistic restrictions on diet and, and Sabbath days and all of that stuff. But, let's do this, let's write to them that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. What, what's that all about? Why these four things? That all centered around what? Idolatry of those times. And what's he, why, 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 is he, why is he encouraging them to stay away from this? 
if they go back in for just one little thing, they're going to fall back in. The they could be sucked back into it. And also, what would be most offensive for the Jews? These things. He's saying, let's encourage them, you know, to be sensible in this liberty, so to speak. Let's let's encourage them that they don't do those things that and by the way, sexual immorality, that's that's of course a a a um a command. All right. But the thing strangled, well, what is that? The thing strangled them from blood. Why why did he encourage that? Well, the thing strangled. What? No, it's not that. It was, it was part. If you strangle the animal and cook it, where's the blood? It's still in the body. All right. It's not drained out of the body. And 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 one of the things, and that would be abominable to the average Israelite, right? To drink blood. Okay. <laughs> well, they, I, I'll tell you what, they've drained most of the blood out of the beef. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, they, they've drained most of the blood out, you know. It's not pure blood. But but, but also, it not only had to do with pagan idolatrous practices, but it was just a sensible thing. That's, it, it, he's just saying, be sensible, all right, um, and be considerate. So James is saying that the Jewish believers yeah. He's starting to get it. He's starting to get it. All right. So they had to make a concession or compromise for the, to, to, to keep the Jews in. Is that what he had to do? Yeah. Otherwise, they might have bolted. Yeah, he's trying. He's saying, you know, really what you see going on here, he's saying, look, although the Pharisees, you know, they have all these rules and regulations, let's not freak the guys out. You're trying to merge yeah. yeah, you're trying to merge them. And he's saying, try to be sensitive to each other. Pharisees, don't drop all your legalistic junk on these people. You don't take your freedom and flaunt it to the Pharisees. Get along. You know, that's what he's trying to encourage here. All right. And that just makes sense. You know, if I'm in, you know, if I go to another culture, I need to be sensible to that culture. I might have the perfect freedom to do as I please with God, but you know, you, you need to be sensible. But the way he worded it wasn't a rule. It no. It was just a request. It was a request. And he's not making, because it is, it's not a legalistic thing, right? I mean, that goes back to 1 Corinthians. Am I allowed to eat the meat offered to idols? Paul says, sure, have at it. It's cheap meat. Go for it. But if it freaks your brother out, don't. Yeah, just be sensible about it. Is it okay to have a glass of wine with your spaghetti? Absolutely, have at it. But you know, if it freaks out a Baptist sitting there, don't do it. All right. I'm not joking. I mean, seriously. You know, I I went out with a couple of really strong Christian friends, and they had a glass of wine with their steak, and they asked me, "Says it bother you?" I said, "No, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm going to have my Pepsi, but you go ahead and have your glass of wine. That's fine. It's okay." It is. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. It says don't be drunk. All right. Um, but he's trying to be, and he's trying to, he's, James is trying to be the, 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 the peacemaker. We got two disparate cultures steeped, you know, in their own traditions. They need to compromise. 
Pharisees, don't drop your legalism on these people because that's a burden they can't bear and we can't bear. You people, don't take your liberty and flaunt it on the Pharisees. All right? Yeah. Really strange. I understand compromise. Understand it totally. But if you compromise, how do you know that God actually didn't want this or this when all you're doing is trying to find a middle ground? You know the question and the question and the answer to that would be are you violating a commandment of God? Are you violating a clear, unambiguous commandment of God? And are For example, sexual immorality, is that culture or is that a command of God? It's a command of God, all right? It's a commandment. Alright? So we need you know that that's those are those are no brainers. Those are things that we have to do. Alright? But there's a lot of things that we do that are just courteous. It's yeah, respect the people, respect their culture. Yeah, in that culture. You know, and that's just being that's just being sensible. You know, and and as Christians, we need to be sense we need to be sensitive. To those around us, and although we, you know, we this is a whole topic for Corinthians next semester. Um, we might have liberty to do a lot of things, but in order to for circumcision, wasn't it God? And and why did God require that for the Old Testament Jew? Separation. Separation. Right. All right. When did God come along and say, "I no longer require this"? Well, all right, I do now. Because because they're starting to get the hint here, and it's it Paul brings it out. They're getting the hint. Wait a minute. If the Jew who was circumcised got the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues, and the Gentiles uncircumcised got the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues, what's God saying about circumcision? It's irrelevant. If this guy who's never ate pork in his life has got the Holy Spirit, and this guy who eats pork every day gets the Holy Spirit, what's God saying about your cuisine, especially with the sheet coming down out of heaven, it's irrelevant. All right, and so that's they're starting to get that here. All right, they're starting to understand that. And James is just saying, let's not offend each other. Let's not offend each other. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What he's saying there is if, let's encourage the Gentile believers to not do that. Why? Because they might be around Jewish people who they want to reach for the, for Christ. And if they're, you know, munching their ham sandwich while trying to witness to a Jew, that's probably not going to work out very well. So be sensitive to the cultural issues. That's all that's being said here. Be sensitive. I made a mistake once once in Jewish delicacy in the first day of my life. My girlfriend, but uh, I went into a Jewish delicatessen and I ordered milk and ham and a beef sandwich. You never do that together. You yell at me afterwards. 
Yeah. Look at me really funny. Because you're not supposed to boil a kid in its mother's yeah. milk or whatever, like something like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a new thing. When you have a roast beef sandwich and a Jewish delicacy, you always have cream soda. You never have milk. Yeah. Do they have milk in the premises? Sure. You can have milk and something else, but just not milk and beef together. Oh. Yeah. Really? If you don't get anything out of the class, at least you got that. I got that. Oh, by the way, I meant to tell you that I got I got to get this for you. Um, Richard Fisher has asked, um, pass on a request for Moody Bible Institute. Uh, uh, the, you know that um, if there if you have any testimonies or anything that you want to share with them, to send it up to them. They'd like to hear from y'all. So if I've taught you any heresy and you want to rag on me, feel free to do that. Um, they, they're looking for testimonies and that they want to you know try to promote the. The, the extension school and that. And if you have any good stories, cool. I'm glad that pass it on. Square on, uh, on Benny Hinn. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, verse 22, it says this Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to change souls and men of their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So they sent. A group back, and what was this group to do? To go back to Antioch and relay the decision of the Jerusalem Council. And they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. What's Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia? Provinces in the city there. Greetings. Since we heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words on selling your souls, saying you must be circumcised to keep the law to whom we gave no... By the way, we didn't send these guys. Now, had they ever sent them? No, they just represented themselves. Hi, we're from Jerusalem. By the way, you got to be circumcised. And James is saying, no, we did not send these guys out. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Why do they say beloved Barnabas and Paul? Well, they're trying to say that Barnabas and Paul were right. Okay, that's that's the diplomatic way of doing it. Okay, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were therefore sent Judas and Silas, who also report the same things by the word of the Lord. They didn't send just Paul and Barnabas back, right? They sent two other guys to witness it, because Paul and Barnabas that come back said, "Yeah, they agree with us." Some would say. Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you have official emissaries from the Jerusalem Council saying the same stuff, it lends credence to that. Seem good with the Holy Spirit to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Why were they necessary? Cultural. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Bye. Basically, cinema... Mm -hmm. And what's the idea of doing well there? Culturally, you're not freaking out the Jews. All right. And sexual immorality was a big thing in those days. Now, we know that, yeah, that's a commandment of God. But, um, you know, immorality really keyed into the idolatrous practices of those days. 
So that's the Jerusalem Council. What did they do? They got together and ironed out, is it law or is it grace? And, of course, in the New Testament, it's always what? Grace. Grace alone, faith alone. So when they set off, they came to Antioch. When they gathered them all together, delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So what do you know about the Antiochian church right now? A lot of Gentiles in it, right? Mm -hmm. And why is that? Well, that's way up north, you know, and that's in the Gentile areas. Now, Judas and Silas themselves being prophets, what's a prophet here? Preacher. A teacher, preacher. Was there a predictive component possibly? Sure. Scriptures had not been given yet, but for the most part, they were teachers, preachers, te um, expositors. They exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren and the apostles. So they went and ministered and stayed there a while, taught. But Silas remained there. Silas is also called Silvanus, by the way. That's his other name. That's his Roman name. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they're back in Antioch, and this goes on for some time. And then after a while, what did Paul do in verse 36? He said to Barnabas, let's uh, go back and see how everybody's doing in the cities we visited. Which cities were those? Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Antioch of Pisidia, and, and other cities, and the cities in Cyprus. And Barnabas determined to do what? Take John Mark. And what did Paul think about that? No. What a wuss. Get him out of here. I don't want him around. All right. Um, Paul, again, Paul was triple A. He had to run to keep up with him. And he didn't have a whole lot of tolerance for anybody that wanted to quit. All right. Um, now, some people make a big deal out of this. Say, well, Paul was being ungodly and Barnabas was being ungodly. What do you think? You got two missionary teams instead of one. Seems to me that's a that's a winner, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Was Paul out of line for not wanting John Mark on the trip? No. Not necessarily, right? I mean, Paul Paul is very much of a go 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 guy. Um, and Barnabas, what what kind of person do you think Barnabas was? He was laid back, son of consolation. You ever see anybody really good at counseling being a double A person? Seth, Seth is not double A. Seth is, you know, if Seth, if Seth was bouncing around the walls, he could not be a good counselor, right? Because you can't pay attention. You know, you don't have time to deal with these idiots. You know, get out of here. Go away. Um, you got you got to be you got to have that demeanor, that temperament to slow down and take your time. And, you know, and that was Barnabas. Paul, he was the, you know, the vocal one to go get it. And. John Mark, you know, slowed him down. He, Paul didn't want to have any of that. He didn't want to be babysitting the little kid, so to speak. So what happens? Well, they split. Barnabas takes John Mark, and where does he go? Now, what, did, is that where Paul visited on his first missionary journey? Sure. But Barnabas said, let me tell you what, Paul. I'll take John Mark. I'll go down, and I'll check out Cyprus. You can go check out the other places. 
Well, you know, again, was Paul wrong in what he did? Yeah. He had been left behind on this one. Now, did Paul ever change his mind about John Mark? Sure he did. Sure he did. All right. But Paul was, you know, he said, you know, this is a hard journey. It's arduous. You know, I got stoned. You know, I don't need someone that's going to bail on me to go along with me. Yeah. Paul was saying there's no way I'm taking John Mark because he bailed out on us. Mm -hmm. Remember what happened, Barnabas? We got stoned in Lystra. Yeah. Or I got stoned in Lystra. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen when John Mark shows up and there's a little bit of, you know, um, friction there? That guy's he's going to be emotional. He said, I have enough problems dealing with the people, much less dealing with John Mark. Forget it. And Barnabas says, look, you know, he's my nephew. You know, you got to give him another chance. Come on. And John, and and there's nothing in it. And here, no. And what you see here, Paul can use. God can use both of you, right? God is. There's nothing in it that God says. And God was very unhappy with Paul's stubborn attitude. No. I mean, Paul. I mean, stop and think about it. If you're going to go on a trip and it's going to be really long and hard and tough. Do you want somebody that's going to bail out on you? No. No. And Paul says he's already bailed out once. I'm not going to take him on another one. But he's going to be faithful like wrong. Why? Because Barnabas took him along. John Mark may have grown up. John Mark may have matured. Yeah. May have been a whole host yeah. of things. All right. But Paul just, there's a sharp contention here. So you have two missionary two missionary teams instead of one. Yeah. And what did... What did uh, Barnabas do well. He went down to Cyprus. John, uh, uh, Paul, and Silas went over to Cilicia. Now, how did they get to these cities this time? How much is it? How much you need from each of us? She's gonna clean me out here. Okay, I got six dollars. There you go. Doesn't did he, say. Did he disappear and did you ever hear from him again? Uh, I don't think so. All right. So you got the two missions. And how did Paul get to Iconium, Lister, and Derby in that now? Took the land route, didn't he? Over there. All right. He went to Iconium? Yeah. Iconium, Lister, Derby, and Anak. And why did Paul do this? He wanted to revisit yeah. the churches that he had already been there, already, already been to. All right. To encourage them. See how they're going. They didn't have, you know, the high speed Internet and all that in those days. So the only way to find out is to go back and visit these churches. They were all a bunch of brand new Christians. And he wanted to go see how they were doing. All right. You got enough money? If you need more, Don said he'll provide it. No. Okay, good. So this here is the beginning of the second missionary journey. Yeah. Now, now again, here it says here, Paul said, "Remember the grace of God." He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. Where is Syria and Cilicia? Cilicia. 
Cilicia. He went north. Okay? He, he followed the land route. Okay? Now, before, what did they do? They sailed from Antioch down to Cyprus and then up. But Barnabas and, Tim, and John Mark went down to Cyprus. So Paul says, well, we'll just walk north and we'll go through Cilicia, which is the province of Rome, right on that, that southern part of Turkey there where you, know, you, you turn and go down towards Antioch. Antioch is in Syria, the province of Syria. All right. And they would hit first hit Derby, then Lystria, Iconium, and Antioch in that order. Because they're coming in from the west. So the east. They're coming in from the east. Okay. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Who's who's this guy? The one yeah. And in fact, here's Timothy. The thing about Timothy is he became Paul's hand-picked successor. When Paul was going to pass off the scene, he picked two guys to fill his shoes. Who's the other one? Titus. Timothy and Titus. Titus. And uh, Timothy was, of course, he lived in Lystra with his mother. Um. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, so he lived in that area. His mother, we know, was, what was his mother's name? Eunice and his grandmother was Lois. All right. And uh, his father was a Greek, so he was a half Greek, half Gentile. I mean, half Gentile, half Jew, I'm sorry. Who here? All right. And uh, he becomes a very important player. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.